All right, church, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those and turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel, chapter number one. And as you're turning there, uh, let me just uh, have a confession with you. Can I do that uh, before we get started? I feel like every time I stand up to preach God's Word, I say something along the lines of, I'm so excited uh, to preach this text. And I'm never lying to you, I promise. I usually am always excited. Uh, God always does more uh, in me than He ever does through me. Uh, but this morning is a little uh, more uniquely true, that statement, that I'm excited to preach um, this uh, message this morning. I, I'm filled with hope and anticipation of what God might do uh, in us if our eyes are opened to the truths we're going to be wrestling with uh, together this morning. Because uh, the theme that kind of runs throughout the book of Ezekiel that we'll find as we walk through this, uh, this book together this morning is a theme that has absolutely changed my view of God. And it's absolutely transformed the way I view what it means to follow Him it transforms my view of what it means to uh, be obedient in the midst of suffering. When everything else around us seems to just be unraveling, like what, what, as Christians, what lens do we see through to make sense of the world? It changes everything when you get a glimpse of what we're talking about this morning. And it's not just the theme of Ezekiel. It's the theme, uh, I believe, with all my heart, of the Bible. And so I'm indebted to uh, church history and and men who are much, much smarter than me, I'm knocking them off for like a, most of this sermon this morning. But that's okay, because it, it tells us something that if the church history has been preaching um, this theme throughout Scripture, then it's something that we should uh, pay attention to this morning. So you say, Derek, what's the theme? Man, what is it? I think we're going to see in Ezekiel this morning is that everything that motivates God ultimately stems from and flows from and has as its end the glory of God. Everything that God has created, everything that God does, is ultimately for His glory. He's not motivated predominantly by us. So at the center of God's plan, at the center of His purposes, is not our happiness. And it's not what is convenient for us. Like, we're not in the middle. God's not moving history just to get our agendas met. Like, we get that, right? Like, God has something much more glorious and much more grand and awesome and worthy of worship that is happening. The story of God is not ultimately about us. It's about Him. And so before we jump into Ezekiel and get introduced to Him, let me illustrate what I mean by this, how, how foolish it is for us to make life about anything other than uh, God's glory. So let's just say I came to you this morning. It's been a while since I've been here at the Gray Campus to preach. Uh, so let's say since, you know, I've been here, you know, things have looked up for me. So I've recently starred in a movie with Brad Pitt, to which God's people would say, ha ha, yeah, right. There's no way that you were on a movie with Brad Pitt. So I was like, no, 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 I convinced you. So you red box it, you Netflix it, you know, you go home and watch the hour and a half, two hour film with Brad Pitt. Um, and nothing that even closely resembles Derek Sherfee is on the screen. And you say, he lied to me, you know, or he's just delusional, one of the two. And so you call me up and say, hey, I watched the movie, and bro, you don't star in this movie. That movie's not about you. And I said, no, 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 Watch it again, and at five minutes and 36 seconds, there I am. So you go back, and you do your DVR or whatever, and you look at it, and I'm the guy with the big beard standing in the background with hundreds, if not thousands of people in New York City as Brad Pitt and the camera crew walks by doing the plot of the story. I'm in the background. I'm one of the many people on the street. 
And you would say to me back, rightfully so, you've lost your mind. <laughs> or you're full of yourself because you are not the star of the movie. You just so happen, at best, you are a stage prop, you know? Like, that's who you are. And so that's a really silly example. But how foolish would it be for us to say, the story of God, this grand thing that's happening throughout human history is all about me. What I want, what I would rather, my, my comfort, my preferences, God exists to be the cosmic Santa Claus in the sky to give me everything that I want. That is what he does. He exists for my happiness. I'm a star in the show. This is my life, and I'm on the stage. And instead, what we understand about Scripture, God revealing himself to us, is that this story is not about us at all, and we play supporting roles in the story of God. Everything God does is motivated by his glory. So before we look into that in Ezekiel chapter 1, let me introduce us to Ezekiel. So if you've been reading along with us in the story plan, uh, maybe you've uh, read a little bit in Ezekiel and you're going, who is this guy and what is going on? Why is this in the Bible? So let's make some sense of Ezekiel before we jump in, okay? Ezekiel was a priest that turned prophet. So who are prophets? Remember, we've been looking at this throughout the Old Testament. We've been reading through the story. Prophets are men who are called by God to speak on behalf of God to the people of God. And they say things like, thus says the Lord, this. And so they would say things like, you have broken the covenant with your God. You were created for a relationship with him, and you've walked away, you refuse to repent. If you will repent, if you'll turn back to God, he'll show mercy. His arms are open wide. There's grace for you. He will restore you. But if you refuse to repent, there's judgment judgment. I'm a holy God. I must punish sin. But even in that judgment, every prophet has this theme that there is hope of a coming restoration. Even in the midst of all the judgment and the doom and gloom that we read about in all the prophets, there's a hope that God says, I'm going to fix this. There's a rescuer that's coming. Spoiler alert, that rescuer is Jesus, okay? And we're getting, we're getting there to the end of the year. But all this is pointing to Jesus. But that was the message of the prophets. And we see Ezekiel is raised up by God to speak to these people that theme uh, for that cultural context that he's ministering to. So Ezekiel spends about 20 years, two decades, ministering to the people of Judah. So who's his audience? His audience are the Hebrew exiles. Remember two weeks ago we read in Habakkuk and that the Babylonians have come in and taken um, captive the people of Judah because they refused to rebel or refused rather to repent and turn to God. And so now they've been carried away 10,000 plus into a foreign nation in captivity. And they're living in exile. And Ezekiel was one of those guys. So he's living in exile. He's riding from enemy territory this, um, this book. And he's preaching okay, to people who are living in exile. Maybe it's to people who are asking similar questions that maybe some of us are asking this morning. God, where are you? Are, are, are you going to fulfill your promises? All this destruction, we're ripped away from the promised land and from our people, the temple where the glory of God is said to have dwelt. Now we're carted off and we're living in, among the Babylonians. Is there any hope? And so the book of Ezekiel, is he's writing with that background, but he's looking ahead and prophesying about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. The Babylonians are going to come in and completely destroy the city of Jerusalem and tear down the temple. It's going to happen about a decade later after the first exile. And so the first 24 chapters is Ezekiel talking to the people of Judah saying, this is coming, and here's why, because you've rebelled against God. And chapter 24, 
the Babylonians are coming in and, and destroying the temple. And then the rest of the book is Ezekiel trying to make sense of the second exile and this even more catastrophe that's happening among the people of God. And he's looking and giving just such beautiful hope of that this is not the end. There's going to be restoration. We look ahead to that restoration. So even in the 70 years of exile that you're about to spend, there will be hope. God is not done with his people. Okay? So that's the background, what's happening in Ezekiel, all of this. He's speaking. But what's a little bit unique about Ezekiel, all the prophets are kind of, let's just be honest, we're in church, but we can be real, kind of weird. Guys, some of the things they say and do culturally for us, going, what in the world are up with these guys? They're saying weird things to us. And Ezekiel may get the trophy for the weirdest of them all, okay? If you guys have been reading it in Ezekiel, there's some really, really weird things. Uh, because go, this is what's happening in the book of Ezekiel. God is giving Ezekiel these fantastic visions, these dreams. And it's from these dreams that he's communicating to Ezekiel what he wants to communicate to his people. And Ezekiel is actually kind of a walking sermon or a billboard, if you will. And God has him do these outrageous demonstrations to serve as illustration of these visions that he's getting from God. Okay, So you're reading, you're going, what in the world is all these images and these things? Here's just a couple examples. Uh, Ezekiel... Um, was a recluse. He was kind of that hermit guy, you know, the socially awkward dude that no one, he's not talking to anybody. And there's one point in the story that's one of my favorites. He shaves his beard and divides it in thirds. You guys remember this? And he sets a, a third of his beard on fire, because that's what you do with your beard. And then he chops his beard with a sword, the other, one third of it. And then the other third, he goes out in the street and just scatters it. What in the world is up with this guy? You look at him, he's, he's a psychopath. Like, what is happening with Ezekiel? Another one is he lays down on, the, on his side for over a year just to communicate what God is saying to his people. One of the most striking ones, perhaps, is when his wife dies and God tells him not to mourn. And it's this picture that his, Israel, the, the bride of God, of Yahweh, has rebelled to such a, to an extent it's as if they have died, and it is just what is happening to them. This is Ezekiel's job description. Who's signing up for that? Anybody? Like, I mean, he, he's a, he has a weird part to play in the story of God that's unfolding. But it, I think that if we look at the book of Ezekiel, there's a lot we could say, all right? Commentators throughout centuries have written about this book and tried to make sense of what all these symbols mean. And, we can, and those are good conversations. We can have those. But what I want to do this morning is just look, because I only have a few minutes. You guys want to eat lunch at some point, don't you? So what I want to do is just look at three visions that Ezekiel has, and, and, and follow this theme that God exists for God. And what does that mean? And, and does the rest of the Bible agree with what we see here in Ezekiel? So here's how it's laid out. So this is where we're going. Uh, first we see in chapters 1 through 3 that God's glory is revealed. This idea of revealing is something that was once uh, covered and it's made known. It's, the, the layers have been pulled back. We're going to see God's glory revealed. And then in chapters 8 through 11, Ezekiel gets this vision of the glory of God removed from the temple. So the manifest presence of God is departing from his people. And then the back half of the book, 40 through 48, you see this vision of God's glory will be restored to his people. And so that's where we're going, but let me just, I know how we are. I know when Pastor Mike's preaching, I'm the same way. If I'm here, I'm looking at my watch going, there's no way this guy's getting through all that. And I probably won't. I hope you guys brought a snack because that's, uh, that's it's gonna be, we're going to be here for a while. Uh, but I'm going to spend a lot of my time, the majority of the time on that first one, okay? So if you're looking going, there's no way he's getting two and three. I'll, see, I'll leave that for Pastor Paul preaching next week because we'll be diving into Ezekiel next week as well, okay? Uh, but Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, 
Uh, we see uh, Ezekiel has a vision of God. So turn with me. Let's read that. The words will be also on the screen behind me. In the 13th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I, Ezekiel, was among the exiles by the Shabar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Now, we're going to keep reading here, but keep that in mind. That's important. Well, he's about to see all these symbols are, are visions of God himself. So it seems kind of obscure, but let's see it through that lens. And so I'm going to be skipping around some, so it might be just be easier to follow along uh, with, the, with the words behind me. But Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. So here's the vision. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and a fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Verse 10. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face, The four had the face of a lion on the right side, and the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Verse 14, And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction, being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. Verse 22 says, Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And verse 28 says, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. You say, Derek, that just changed my life. Wow, that's amazing. Like, what is happening in this verse, in this chapter? Obscure images. And I, I heard one commentator say that people have actually tried to argue from this chapter that this is about aliens, not about God. And if you look at this, it almost seems like a sci-fi movie. Like, what in the world is this vision, this appearance that we see? What in the world do we make sense of this? I'm going to run through these very quickly. There's a lot here that we could be uh, looking at all the details, but I just want to get a snapshot of what I believe is the message of chapter 1 for us today. It was the message of the people, for the people of Judah 2,600 years ago. Here's, here's the idea. God is not like us. Remember, it's this vision of God, and it's as if Ezekiel is having to grasp onto any kind of descriptor he can find. That it's so unique and it's so other that there's nothing like this that we can even compare it to in the world. And so it's this this belief and God reveals himself in the Bible is that he is holy. We just sang about it. You are holy. That word holy literally means this idea of being set apart or separate. I think so many times we want to put God in a little box of the way we maybe grew up thinking about him or with our finite understanding 
We see God in such limited ways. And the biblical, God has revealed himself in Scripture to say, I am completely set apart. I'm not just a superior version of humanity. <laughs> like, I'm not just the best there is at all these things. No, no, no. I am in a category all by myself. I'm set apart. I'm totally other. There is none like me. None. Completely holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Set apart. He is. So listen, we are created in His image. He's not created in our image. Like so many times we want a God that's domesticated, that reflects us more than we reflect Him. And we don't want to see this transcendent God that we cannot tame and we cannot control and that we cannot fully understand. And that doesn't mean we, try, don't, we don't try to understand him. Doctrine is good. Theology is good. But we have to come at it with a, with a sense of humility that God is other. And because there's mystery in who God is and it's bigger than anything that we can wrap our minds around is cause for worship, right? Like if we knew everything there was to know about God and it made perfect sense, then he wouldn't be a God to worship because we figured it out. So therefore, we're superior. We're God. And so we see that God is just completely set apart. But then we also see these images that tells us that God is the unlimited king. This is picture of this flaming chariot. And when you think of a chariot, you think of a king and his power riding in to conquer in battle. So God is the sovereign Lord who sits in the heavens and does as he pleases, Psalm says of him. And he's so powerful and in control we are so limited in our power but he is infinite in his and then these wheels it says these wheels within a wheels and they turn in all directions they're not just a typical chariot that has an, an axle and turns like left or right or forward or backward it says they're going in all directions at all times and it's this picture that god is not limited and he's all present his glory is filling the earth there's nothing that contains him Every, everywhere he, he goes, there's the glory of God on display. And particularly, listen, this chariot is mobile. You see, Derek, that doesn't mean anything to me. Yes, chariots move. But here's what it would have meant to the people of Judah when they're hearing this. Is they understood that God's presence, his glory, was represented in the temple. This building, this is where the glory of God was said to dwell. And now get this, Ezekiel is in captivity in Babylon seeing a vision of the glory of God. That's moving. That it's no longer, God is not just confined to a temple. He's not just confined to Jerusalem. His glory fills the earth, even in captivity. Even when everything around seems to be falling apart and God can't get glory through this, God is giving Ezekiel this beautiful vision that says, I'm still in control. I've got this. It's a beautiful uh, picture. He's bigger, church. He's bigger than any limitations we can place on him. One of the most freeing things we can do is just to be in awe of this God. And we keep going. You see, remember the story where we read there, there's eyes everywhere on these wheels. Like, what in the world? That sounds really terrifying. Like, what does that mean? And these four-headed creatures are looking in all directions. And this is principle, the picture that God's telling us. He's all-seeing. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. That he knows everything possible, and he knows everything that's actual. What that means is there's never been anything that's outside of his control. God's not wringing his hands. He's not going, whoa, oh, I wasn't expecting them to do that. He's sovereign over all things. He sees everything as they actually are. And he sees everything possible. 
if you would have made a different decision, how it would have turned out, that he is all wise. He knows everything. There's no limit to the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And so it's this transcendent picture that we get of God. And then it takes a step further. And if this ought to just blow us away, it says that he is not just that transcendent holy God. Like, who can approach that God? Like, how are we to know him? And he reveals himself not just as this holy, all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing being, but he also reveals himself as faithful and personal. He's faithful. Remember, he says that this appearance of the glory of God was like a rainbow in the sky. You guys remember the, the rainbow with Noah? The, the rainbow is a picture of God's faithfulness, that God will keep his promises. So even when they're in captivity, God says, I have not abandoned you. My glory is showing off to you that I am faithful. I'm right where I am. I'm accomplishing. I'm moving history for my purposes. He's faithful. But see, Noah saw the bow after the storm, but Ezekiel is seeing this in the midst of the storm. God is faithful to keep his promises to us. But he goes on and says he's personal. The reason, listen, that we're seeing this vision, and we read it and go, this is so over my head, I don't understand it all. The only reason that we can make sense of it at all is because God has revealed it to us. That verse 1 started, says, the Lord, the Lord opened up the heavens. And the Lord was the one speaking. He's revealing this about himself. That's so amazing. This God that dwells in inapproachable light. That when you get a glimpse of God, you see that throughout the scriptures. When they get a glimpse, and Ezekiel does the same thing in 28, he falls on his face as dead. And it's this God who spoke everything into existence that says, I want a relationship with you. I'm saying these things that you might know who I am. That you see me as I actually exist in all of my glory. We can't compartmentalize that. We can't just take out the parts we don't like. We have to see God as he reveals himself in this book, ultimately in the person of Jesus. And we see, God, this is who you are. But all of that revealing is so that we can know him intimately. Go all the way back to to Exodus. Let me prove this point even further. That when um, Moses says, before he goes to Pharaoh, who do I say sent me? You remember what God said? I am that I am. The God that's eternal, I just exist. I always was. There's never a time that I wasn't. I'm this transcendent, holy God. There's no one like me. None of us can say that. We're created. We're finite. We're limit. We have limits. And he says, here's my name. That's who I, that, that's who I am in a person. I just am that I am. You tell him that I am sent you. And then he gives his personal name. You guys remember? The Lord. Jehovah. He's this God who's just the I am, but yet he makes himself known in a name. That we can know him, have intimacy with him. Verse 28 tells us how to make sense of all of this, that such, all of that, verse 28, was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. So we've got to ask ourselves at this point, what is the glory of God? If this is a a vision of the glory of God, what is it? And so turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 20. The words will also be on the screen. And as you're turning there, here's what this is. The passage we're about to read is one example among, listen, 70 times in Ezekiel alone where God says something along the lines of, I'm doing this that they, the nations, may know that I am the Lord, that I'm Yahweh, that I'm the God who's high and lifted up, but I'm the God who comes near. I'm doing these things 
that they may know that I'm the Lord. Here's one example. We'll read this um, lengthy passage here together. Verse 20. When they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, the name of Yahweh. In that, people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of this land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, thus says Yahweh, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness, the the set-apartness, the completely otherness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And verse 32 is an absolutely startling statement from the mouth of God. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. I don't know if you're like me, but that struck me as odd as I'm reading this. Because how often do we say something along those lines that God exists to make me happy? He exists. It's for me that he's doing these things. It's a very me-centered view of the holiness of God and what he's doing in the world. And from the mouth of God, he's saying, it is not for your sake. I'm not going to restore you, listen, because you're worthy of being restored, because you're not. I'm not even going to do it because I exist to see you happy and fulfilled, although we find happiness and fulfillment in God. But the, the primary motivation that motivates God to do everything that he does, every blessing, every hardship that comes in our life, all of it is says, for my name's sake, for my glory for the vindication of my name. Now here's a quote um, from several men have said something along these lines. We are to do everything for the glory of God. And most of us won't stumble over that, right? We, we, We do everything for the glory of God. But some of us stumble over this idea of this next phrase because, here's why, because God does everything for the glory of God. Does that strike you kind of odd to me? Because I have wrestled with this this week, and it's the last several years of my life, like I said, this theme has been something that's radically transformed the way I see everything. Is that I'm to live my life as a representation of the, for the glory of God precisely because God exists for the glory of God. He does everything that He does for His glory. So what is it? What is the glory of God? So we can help make sense of this. So here's a definition that Pastor Mike and I try to put together. He's preaching this same text in Dawson City this morning. So the glory of God is the visible manifestation of the supreme beauty and worth of who God is. The the visible manifestation of the supreme beauty and worth of who God is. So I like the way one writer said it. It is the going public of His holiness. It's who he is and is being set apart and completely different than everyone. It's that God on display. You say, how do you know that? Well, Isaiah chapter 6, we won't spend much time here, but it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him stood the seraphim. So there's our friends again. They're making another appearance. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said. Notice this song they're singing. They're screaming this out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. No one like you. Holy, holy, holy. And you would expect, if we continue to read, it says the whole earth is full of his, we would almost expect that it says the whole earth is full of his holiness because he just said, holy, holy, holy are you Lord. The whole earth is full of your holiness. But that's not what it says. It says the whole earth is full of your, what's it say? Glory. Glory. And so the glory of God, here's the way to think about this, is he is who he is in his person. And when that, when that reality fills the earth, the result is glory. It is all that God is seen, displayed. And so this idea of glory, if that still doesn't help us, this idea of glory is the idea of weightiness. In the original language, it literally means this idea of a balance. And so think if I had scales up here. Um, and so if something's weightier, more value, more substance, it's going to tip the scales in this direction. So we're to say there's more glory in that. There's more, it's more supreme. It's, it's worth more worth more so here's an example to, to illustrate this if i said okay today i'm gonna give you a really good deal i'm gonna sell you a hot dog who's hungry with me i'm get, kind of getting there myself uh, i don't know if hot dogs will make you hungry but anyway i'll sell you a hot dog for five hundred dollars to which you would reply no way that's not worth it right a hot dog is not worth five hundred dollars but if i said okay come over to my house today and i will sign over uh, my house to you now, my house is not worth much more than $500, but it is worth a little bit more than 500 bucks. You would say to that, no, that's a good deal. Because the house appraises for much, much more than $500. So see, I will sacrifice the 500 because directly correlated to the worth that I give that object. Does that make sense? So if I, I'm never going to sacrifice $500 for a hot dog because there's no way. It's not glorious enough. The $500 weighs more than the hot dog. But man, when you see the house, man, like the house weighs much more than that 500 bucks. I'll gladly sacrifice. So here's what we mean when we say that God is glorious. He's the most glorious reality of the universe. We're saying that there's nothing weightier or worth more. That he is the supreme treasure of the universe. That there's nothing that should give you the, the... the weight of your soul other than the glory of who he is on display. He's the weightiest of them all. He's all together. So I, listen, I will gladly sacrifice all things when I see the, how beautifully glorious and the greatest treasure that is our God. That's what it means to give God glory. Weight. He's worth it. He's worth our worship. So here's what I want to do. This, that's in Ezekiel. God said, I'm doing this for my namesake. But I want to just start back in Genesis. You go, oh my goodness, we'll never get out of here. I promise, we'll go through these quick. And I just want to almost have an interview with God and ask some questions to see this through the word of God. So here's a question. God, why creation? Psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Everything that's created points to that. God, why do we exist? Isaiah would say, everyone who's called by my name whom I created for my glory. So God, okay, that's why 
everything exists. That's why I was made. But what's the point of the Bible? What's the point of human history? All that we're seeing God do as we walk through the story this year, what's the purpose of it all? I just want to give you two examples out of many in the Old Testament. I'm going to use Romans 9 because he talks about the people in Exodus, right? When Moses um, was leading his people out of Egyptian bondage, it says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The point of the Exodus is that the glory of God, that God's name would be known among the nations. Or, okay, we've seen how the people of Israel continue to rebel no matter what God has done in their lives. So why didn't God just wipe them out? Have you ever thought about that? They're just so just rebellious. Why, didn't God, why did God spare them? Well, here's one example. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22 says, For the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. You say, okay, Derek, I get it. You're not going to... God's not going to crush me because of my sin, but why does he forgive us in the first place? Why does he make an atonement for our sins by dying on the cross for us and rising again? Why does he do that? Fundamentally, Psalms would tell us, help us, O God of our salvation. Why? Why help us? We're not worthy of it. For the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins. Why? For your name's sake. Say, Derek, okay, I, I know my sin, and I'm just tired this morning. Can I just tell you that God will be the satisfaction of your soul? He will restore your soul in Him. But why? He will, but why? One of the most popular verses in all the Bible, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. How beautiful is that? He's doing all of that for us. That's true. But why? What's the purpose? For his name's sake. For his glory. God, why did you save me? Why did you, in my sin, choose to to adopt me into your family, to choose to make me alive, and to forgive me of my sins, and to give me your righteousness? Why did you do that? Ephesians 1 says, in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus according to the purpose of His will. Why? To the praise of His glorious grace. Literally, of the glory of His grace. That's why you're saved. God, okay, I know that I, I'm a child of God, but what are you asking of my life today? First Corinthians 10 says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything in our lives is to put magnifold beauty and supreme value of God on display. 1 Peter 4 says, you use your gifts in the body in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus. To Him be glory and dominion forever. A few more. It says, God, what are you doing in my life? Maybe you're here and you say, I've tried to do that. I get that I'm supposed to live for God's glory and I'm sacrificing so much and it seems like everything is falling apart around me. What are you doing in my life today? Does it feel like you can get glory through this situation? What's he saying to us? Second Corinthians says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. When we see who he is on display, we are being transformed. That word is literally metamorphosis. It's like a little 
cocoon into a butterfly. We're being transformed to something new. What does that look like? How does that happen in me? How can I change, really? How can I overcome this sin? How can this happen? It says he transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's sanctification. It's a churchy word that says he is making you to become who you already are in Jesus. He's changing us to be more like Jesus. Well, why? To the praise of his glory. That he would get more glory through our lives and the way we reflect him in all that we are and all that we think and all that we do. Lastly, God, where is all this going to end up? I get that. I know you're working in me, now, in me, but I look around and I see the political landscape and I see the economy and I see terrorism and all the things in our world. And just, is there any hope? What's the end of all of this? And history's moving somewhere. It's going somewhere. Here's, here's the end of it. I'm going to go to a prophet Habakkuk that we read a few weeks ago. He prophesies of his coming restoration. It says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Not one square inch of God's creation that is not just enamored by the glory of God. And one last one, Revelation 21, this vision that John has of the new heaven and the new earth. When God, Jesus comes and makes all this new, here's, here's what, it, this is such a beautiful picture. It says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And his lamp, and his lamp is the lamp. God, in, in unveiled, no more the presence of sin to where we can only see dimly and it'll take an eternity to worship this eternal God. And he says, that's going to be the light of all things. And see, this is why we just sang two or three songs and we said, hallelujah, right? You know what that means? I didn't know what this meant until a couple years ago. Literally, the word, hallelujah, praise Give glory to, show significance, say you're worth everything. Yah, which is Yahweh, the name of God. Remember, he revealed himself as Yahweh. He's the Lord. And so when we're singing hallelujah, we're saying praise Yahweh. Can we just do that this morning? Say hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise be to you, Yahweh. Not to me, not to this world. You are more weighty, you're more glorious, you're more beautiful than anything else in this world. And so I want to live, and I want to suffer, and I want to die, and I want to wait. And everything that I do, from washing dishes, to living my life, to raising my kids, I want it all to scream, you are beautiful. Hallelujah. Praise be to you and you alone. Who else would we worship? And so to go back, so if that, we stumble over this idea that God exists for God, that everything he does is for his glory fundamentally. Pr- the, the primary motivation is that. If that bothers us, you say, does that mean God's like egocentric? <laughs> like it doesn't, don't we kind of like hate when people are like, be all about me, live for me, sing to me? <laughs> you guys know C.S. Lewis, famous author? He stumbled over this concept when he read the Psalms. And said, like, God just seemed like a little old lady that was fishing for compliments. Like, so what does that mean? Like, is this God egocentric? Are we worshiping this egomaniac of a God? Like, what does this mean? Why is this a good thing? And it's egotistical for us to say that, any of us in the room, because we're not the greatest reality and the greatest treasure of the universe. But if God is who he says he is, the most loving thing he can do to you and to me and to the, the world and to the nations, while we call them to repent and believe, is... That's the most loving thing that we can do to say, 
find satisfaction and fulfillment in me. Because there's nothing else in this universe that will fulfill you like me. I'm everything. So when I say exist for my glory, it is because, like, who else is God going to exalt? Me? (laughs) You? Like, that would elevate us to be God. He says, exalt me because I am by definition God. I'm worthy of this. But it's not because he's egotistical and it's not because he's after keeping you from something. When you are delighting in the glory of God is when you find the greatest joy. Satisfaction in Him and what you see. Because listen, this is freeing when we realize life is not about us. That's freeing. We're not the star in the movie. So you're free then to love your spouse and to go to the nations and even die among an unreached people group if, if need be because it's about the glory of God. It's not about me. My life is an offering. I just die to myself that he might get praise through my life. That is why you exist, and that is what it means to be a Christian, is to come to see that he is the most glorious thing in the universe. Well, I'm running behind. Imagine that. (laughs) We'll run through these really quickly as we close. I won't read them for the sake of time. Pastor Paul will set this up uh, next week. Uh, But Chapter 8, here's what happens. God gives Ezekiel this vision of the temple. And there's idols all throughout the temple. Okay? And there's this vision. The same chariot we saw in chapter 1 is removed from the temple. Because of their idolatry, they refused to surrender and obey this God. They refused to be satisfied in the glory of God. And he removes his glory from the people. She's okay, Derek, that's back in Judah. I don't care about that. Like, it's kind of a neat history lesson. That's not me. Well, Paul, through writing to the church at Rome would disagree with us. Romans chapter 1 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. The glory of the more immortal God for images. Notice, not resembling God but resembling us, mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Listen, I don't have time to unpack this, but our sin, fundamentally, the problem of all of our lives, is not fundamentally about our behavior. It's about a worship problem. We do not want to delight in the glory of God. We want it to be about us, and we worship everything, anything that we can get our hands on to find worship, to find significance and validation and God in His grace says, it will not satisfy you. Trade in all the lesser glories of your life for a greater glory. Don't spend your life on what you think is for your comfort and your safety and just to get the next, the biggest house and to get the nice 401k. Like, that will fu- not fulfill you. Live for my glory. Live for my glory. It's what you were created for. So it ends, this story that Ezekiel does, with the glory of God restored. And so we'll talk about that again next week. But it's this picture of, I'm going to restore all of this. I'm going to gather you back to myself, people of Israel. I'm going to make you my people. But how? He says, I'm going to put my spirit within you. And you're going to take this old heart of stone that refuses to be satisfied in the glory of God. I'm going to take that out of you. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh that sees who I am and responds with, yes, that's what my soul needs. And I want him and you, you change from the inside out, that's what it means to be a Christian, is to get a new 
heart because you have seen who God is and you are forever changed. We live for his glory. So Ezekiel sees this image of the, the glory of the Lord coming back into the people of, of Israel and into Jerusalem. So the question as we close is how? How does this happen? Well, really quickly, Jesus is the glory of God made visible. John 1 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's the, if you want to know the glory of God, look at the face of Jesus. Then He lives the life we couldn't live, and He dies the death that we deserve, and He rises again. What's the purpose of that? From the mouth of Jesus in John 12, and he's praying right before he goes to the cross. Listen to this. Hang with me. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus says. I see that I'm going to bear the wrath of the Father for you. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But it is for this purpose that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The prayer on the lips of Jesus before he climbs on your cross and my cross is, Father, glorify your name. Show yourself to be beautiful. And lastly, you say, if Jesus were here and he said, what's, what's he after in my life? What's the aim of Jesus in me? I love John 17. It's the high priestly prayer where he prays for his disciples. He prays for us. Notice what it says. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. See, that relationship, that fellowship. Notice what happens when we're in fellowship with God. To see my glory. See who I am on display that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. God is for God, and we to live for the glory of God because God does everything for the glory of God. And we see that most on display in the gospel where the Son of God, God himself, takes our place and gives us his righteousness so that we can experience his glory. So may we say with Moses, show me your glory. And may we look to Jesus to see it. Pray with me. Bow your heads, close your eyes. We're going to enter into this time of response in this, but um, I want us to ask ourselves some hard questions to say, what do I do with all of this that God is saying to me in this? And so here's some things that I want us to help to lead as a faith family. Maybe the good place to start is to confess our sins. Maybe you say, Derek, I've had a really small view of God. I've just put him in a box and I want to confess that. Maybe all of us need to repent of all the ways that you've looked to other things to find fulfillment, satisfaction, and worth. You're looking for glory and you're looking at it in all the wrong places. We need to repent and trust that he'll forgive us of that sin and restore us and reconcile us to himself that we may see his glory. All of us, church, let's celebrate this good news that God himself would take our place. Celebrate it. Rest in it. Thank Him again for it. I want us all to ask ourselves, are you living for this grand purpose of God in the world? If you looked at the way you live your life, would you say it reflects the excellencies of Him? Everything that I do. And if not, what can we change? How can we live in such a way that glorifies God, shows His worth to the world? And lastly, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you've never seen his glory, today's be the day to say, I, I want to be satisfied in him. I want him. 
If you don't know what that means, come talk to us after the service. We would be glad to walk you through what it means to follow Jesus. But for all of us, we're going to sing this song again. Holy, 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 the great I am. Who's worthy? None besides you. So we say hallelujah. Praise be to you, Yahweh. We live our lives for your glory. It's not about us. It's about him.